Thank you for listening to the MicroBinFeed podcast. Here we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There's so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it is assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan of Enterobase, Grape Tree, and Break Fame, and Dr. Andrew Page of such works as Plasmatron 5000, Rory, and Gubbins. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and you might know me from my tree-making pipeline mastery or my SNP pipeline live set. Both Nabil and Andrew work at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where we work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct professor at the University of Georgia in the US. In a whole, geno- in a whole genome, like post-genomic world, we have that ability where, and to distribute standardized genetic data. And then with that comes the danger of, uh, of issues around privacy because this is very high fidelity, high fidelity reliable um, data along with metadata can be used to infer certain things. For instance, you might have a situation where you do anonymize all of your, all the patient names or something like that, but just based on a process of elimination of, you know that such and such went to hospital at such and such a time, and you can just work backwards and figure out, oh, okay, it's that group of people that have this, or if it's a food outbreak and you know there's, uh, you know, like, oh, these came from animals in a farm in a certain county, and there are only two possible farms that have it in that county, you can kind of narrow it down pretty quickly of of what the ultimate source was. So so then we've got this issue of when we want to go beyond Within, beyond an institution, and we're trying to put data out there to the in a public space so that we can have cross-institutional uh, conversations, we then have to worry about issues of privacy. We have to worry about issues of what are the sort of standard formats we distribute our data in so people can understand it. And also, uh, people can infer the wrong information. So, for example, a lot of UK samples all appear to come from Collendale in London, you know? It, it's obviously rife with disease, but that's primarily because it's Public Health England's headquarters, um, and they just put in a default location for, uh, for privacy reasons. And people can infer the wrong thing as well, because, say, they test food at ports, and then that gets added to the system. But if you're just looking at the country of origin, you might see, oh, it's all coming from the UK, you know, all, all of these pathogens, when in fact they could just have been food samples tested at ports and rejected from countries all around the world. So you have to be very careful about how you actually use the metadata that's there, and you have to go back to the people who've deposited in public archives and double-check with them and, you know, get extended data if, if it is possible. Yeah, it's, it's sort of back to the, it's, because the issue is, is when you submit your data, there's a field that says source. And you're, then you're wondering, source in the context of what? Source as in the people who have the isolate, sources where it came from originally, where it was sequenced. It, it's really quite um, ambiguous with that. And there, I think there's a lot of work trying to improve the way we report uh, this sort of information, so it's a little bit more specific, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Well, I know uh, GMI is helping with this to try and have one standard way 
of reporting this minimal metadata so uh, and trying to nail it all down as well. But you do get slight inconsistencies then between in the US, you have the NCBI has the pathogen checklist and that has very small differences to the EBI implementation, which is the GMI uh, checklist. And those you know, little edge cases are enough to uh, trip up a computer program, which is ultimately what you're, you're going to use to parse these absolutely enormous data sets because there's hundreds of thousands of uh, bacterial isolates in there now. What constitutes minimum metadata for you, Lee? That's a good question. Um, so actually, this was a big discussion point. We had to decide what to do early on with Listeria, which has relatively very few cases in the US. And so one Listeria case could potentially point back to an individual, which would break our, our rules about personally identifiable information. For example, if we uploaded if we did upload a sequence from New York in June 2010, and in the news somebody had Listeria in June 2010, then we could get into trouble because we would have linked that patient back to that genome. So we actually had to be very careful about the metadata. So we decided that we would provide very little metadata to protect patients. So it would basically say that the isolate was from the United States and that it, um, what else would it have? It would have, maybe it was like that and maybe like one more thing, like, like, um, came from human. Maybe not even that. And then we actually anonymized it with an identifier. And then later on in our collaboration, we decided that we would update the metadata six months later to include things like serotype, um, maybe like the collection date range or the year, the geography, um, like the region in the United States, not necessarily the state. And then we would include like an age, age range, which I think would have ranges um, every 10 years of age. Um, FDA has a different set of criteria. They can be a little bit more lax because they don't have to worry about personally identifiable information. But, um, but yeah, you're right. There are inconsistencies across um, agencies in the U.S. for reasons, for, for real reasons. I suppose the FDA has a different um, different set of problems. You know, if they put up stuff that identifies one factory as the source that could have huge commercial consequences. Companies go out of business. We've just seen in the UK, a company that was implicated in a listeria outbreak in hospitals in, in the UK where, where people died, they were shut down for a few weeks and they went out of business. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's, yeah. FDA though, it, they do at least say like what the food is, but not necessarily which company it came from. I, I can see that they would get into, into, into trouble if they identified a country. And then, of course, you know, there are people, certainly in academia, who don't want to share data for a totally different set of reasons. And that, I suppose, is fear of being scooped. Uh, I think it's a big one up there, or maybe they don't have the resources to navigate the the complex systems for uploading data because you know it, it does take a lot of brain power to uh, to get stuff through. 
And I know when I've actually gone particularly to type strains and tried to track back where they've come from, you know, is this strain from a particular country or what year was collected? And quite often that information can be very difficult to come by. You go back to the original papers from 50 years ago and it just says, uh, sent to me by X person and you don't have any more information than that. It's just, it magically appears in the world. And now that's a type strain we all use. Well, a lot of, a lot of those strains, there is a person who does know somewhere. There's a magic, there's a magic technician or a magic postdoc somewhere who has all of this in the back of their head. That's right. <laughs> never, never really bothered to write it down. And often with these really old collections, you have to go back and find that person. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So Andrew, you mentioned, um, you mentioned how little inconsistencies can, can hurt like an analysis when there are you know, hundreds of thousands of organisms. And, um, I just want to ask about Enterobase, since Enterobase is a data user, like how does it deal with these inconsistencies? Well, for, for most of them, we have to just accept it at face value and, uh, and take it with a pinch of salt that there are plenty of instances where uh, if you go to the data that's sort of released on the public databases along with the reads, say within the biosample on NCBI, for instance, and then you go back to the paper, you'll find that there are quite different information. So you even, and we do try the best to sort of like detect these issues and fix it or minor problems. But if it's just a simple outright thing with what value, it says one thing in the paper and one thing on, on the record, uh, you have to basically go back to the literature and try to tidy it up as you go along. Often people tend to upload their data uh, as soon as they generate the sequencing and then realize that as they do their analysis that, oh, wait, this was not, this strain is not this species, it's contamination, or they realize that it's, uh, there was a mix up in the original sample sheet that was sent to them. So they go and clarify that and they fix that for the publication, but they don't necessarily go back and fix that in the record that's already up. And often when I've asked people about this, like, why don't you fix that? They say, oh, but it's in the paper. You just read the paper. It's like, yes, but there's, a, there's essentially almost, there's 200,000 salmonella like SRA records. I'm not going to go and read the paper for each one of them to try and figure out what, which metadata is correct or not. But that, that does not really compute with, with a lot of people. I think for, in the enterbase world for us, the way we sort of thought about uh, the way metadata would work is we would, we, the requirements in Enterbase actually to submit information is, is very, very minor. You just want a rough explanation of the host, the country, and the year. And the reason that we cap capture that is so that we don't expect it to be the primary resource of all of the metadata because of these sort of reasons around privacy and so on, and even academic reasons about being scooped. But what we would hope is that, that there should be just enough information for you to have your strain and see, oh, it's similar to this other strain, which this other person has, which was sampled in this context. I'm going to go and talk to them about it. Uh, and for me, that, that's the main thing, is facilitating that conversation, those collaborations. Um, I don't think it's really tractable to have a, a world where as data is immediately generated, you have everything immediately available. I think, I think that this phrase that you wrote down for, 
for us in, the, in our notes, Nabil, centralized, decentralized future is pretty, um, I think it, it's good. It's a good description because we have several projects across the world um, that are coming out as the platform for whatever set of, I'll call them clients, like PulseNet serves the US or PulseNet International serves our international collaborations. So um, with our centralized, decentralized future, um, we've been trying to kind of get together under the global microbial identifier, GMI. And we have, I think the last count was like 40 or 50 nations represented. And they just want to know how to coordinate with whole genome sequencing across various nations or within their countries. Um, and so the the members for GMI um, can represent so many different things, um, including the, so not necessarily PulseNet, although PulseNet is represented, but uh, we, from the U.S., we, we go there um, representing GenFS, which is, it, it kind of stands for Next Generation Food Safety, which is the collaboration between um, CDC, FDA, the agencies under USDA, and NCBI, and how we're using whole genome sequencing and collaborating with that. I think this year or next year we should see actually a publication describing GenFS, so be on the lookout. I'll, I will make one comment. I think that it's a, actually an incredibly complex paper, and it has, I forgot how many tens of authors. It's actually a very complicated paper. <laughs> But yeah, it's a it's a long time coming. I hope it comes out sooner than later. Oh, the other um, platforms that are re represented there are Irida that you mentioned earlier, Andrew, or also Innuendo. I don't want to speak too much to Innuendo. Um, it's an incredibly useful platform. I don't want to speak too much to, to it because I don't know all of the ins and outs of it, I, I, and I don't want to misrepresent it. But Innuendo is this wonderful platform serving, I believe, 12 countries in Europe. Um, for WGS and Genomic Epi. There's also um, the Compare project, which I don't know a lot about either. Do you guys want to describe it in a nutshell? Oh, well, it's doing something similar to Innuendo as well. So, so Compare is more of a, a Europe, it's another European project and it does something similar to Innuendo. And they are trying to bring in uh, systems like ResFinder and Plasmid Finder um, combined with, say, pipelines and systems that EBI have. So it's like the, the European equivalent of GenFS, probably. And there, there's been a huge amount of money invested in it. And, uh, yeah, it's been a great project. And then uh, one more in the U.S. I forgot to mention, although we did mention earlier, is Galaxy Tracker, and which is uh, the platform over Genome Tracker. And then there are other platforms um, I just want to at least mention that have been used for genomic epidemiology, but maybe they are part of a larger thing that are not, maybe they're not especially focused on it. Maybe also they are, also, maybe like um, they're focused also on population genomics like BigsDB and Enterobase. So they're incredibly useful for, for the things that we've been talking about and much more, but I won't speak too much more to them myself just because I don't know the ins and outs of those either. Do you want to say a thing or two about Enterobase, Nabil? Yes, yeah, so in both cases, there's um, the people have been using 
both kind of platforms to do uh, surveillance and communicate with other institutions as well. And that's the papers out in print where that was their that was a sort of primary analysis like platform. And that's useful. Uh, yeah, agreed. It's not. It's not. It's a little different to the others where it's not sort of streamlined into a reference lab. It's not. It's not handling patient data or any any sensitive metadata like that. And it's, but the information that is available is enough for people to actually start that conversation and talk to each other, which I think is their main main use. They're also online and free, so people can just upload their data and start, start using it for that as well. Start using it to do analysis. So that always helps that sort of low um, price of entry. Yeah, it's a great platform. Thank you for all your work on that, actually. But I think, um, so the thing that came out of working on it on Enterbase was sort of, you, where, you come, where you come out of it coming thinking that in the past, people have approached, so if you take, say, PulseNet or um, even Enterbase or BigCB or even the MLST databases or any of these sort of systems, they all sort of assume these monolithic, central database that is handling all of the requests of the entire world. And that I think is going to, is, is going to s stop being tractable uh, very soon. I mean, I think in the US or in the UK or in, in most of Europe, you can have the logistics where that's sort of possible. You can have internet bandwidth where you can do that. But you've got to remember that a lot of these genotyping methods were really powerful for, for a lot of like um, low income, low economic, like developing countries or elsewhere in the world where they could just do simple PCRs and have results that they could compare to what was going on anywhere else in the world. Or they could do simple PFG or they could do whatever it is. And, have, and then saying now you have to jump to whole genome sequencing to keep up is a big step in terms of just the mechanics and the logistics of then trying to take your data and then submit it to the central server somewhere. So I think that in a lot of cases, we're going to see a move where people, or we should have these platforms available to be run locally and people should be able to, I'm sure within the CDC, you all do this as well, where you sort of do your own local analysis within your institution and then are able to farm out some of the results off to some uh, place that sort of all it's doing is collating these together. And I, I think that's sort of the trend for most, most of the people that I talked to like over the Enterbase time were that's sort of what they wanted to do. They weren't strictly like the people in smaller labs weren't strictly happy with putting, always submitting their uh, data to these sort of large centralized databases. It also creates this odd disconnect that the person holding the data or who's submitting the, the read data isn't strictly the person who's done the field sampling. So when you then see some of these samples out there in public and you want to query, where did this come from? You've written X, Y, Z in the metadata and I want to know more about it. Then that, that person does not know because that person just received it the same way that Andrew was talking about, oh, I just got the sample from X. That's, that's the extent of their information. 
And then it's difficult to have this trace back to who actually got it. So you can ask them the real question of, well, was it sampled from this tissue or that tissue? Or was it, when you say it's from a farm, was it from the animal or was it from the environment around the animal or something like that? So I think there's going to be a shift. And especially with, we see the like real-time sequencing with nanopore and things like that, we definitely have this ability to sort of do a lot of this processing in the field and then at the very end collate it to then say, oh, this is the result, what is happening elsewhere. So what do you think the future will be with this centralized, decentralized future? Will these, will these platforms continue to grow in their niches and they're going to have to learn to talk with each other? Well, I would hope so. Um, yeah, I think, I think what we would have to do is we'd have to actually have um, the platforms themselves will have to just be things that you can run locally and the pipelines will have to be transparent things that you can install and run yourself. It also is quite convenient because if every user assembles their own data, then the person who has to curate and put it together doesn't have to worry about doing it, them, doing it themselves. So that, that innate, like that sort of implicit scaling out of the, of the problem, because I can't imagine if, uh, at the, if we have half a million, half a million salmonella genomes or a million, you know, we're approaching these sort of numbers where in the next few years we will see hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of genomes. I don't think any, any institution wants to go to the rigmarole of trying to assemble or collate all of that. Yeah. That's a really good point. So yeah, so we'll have a, we'll all agree on a, some sort of fixed versioned, probably containerized pipeline that will produce these reliable results. And then there'll be some magic cloud placed in the sky that where we submit those data to, and we can say, hey, I see this, have you seen this? Has anyone seen this? Who has uh, that cloud place will have the minimum sort of metadata that we've been discussing, but probably not much more. And then you will be sort of directed to make those connections and talk to people. Very good. I'm looking forward to the future with that. Our discussion can kind of be boiled down to the old saying, if a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? And so I can translate that saying into if a SNP type or an MLST type is assigned, but it's not reported, does it matter? And it, I think it can only matter if we're all coordinating with each other and and we follow the ideas behind how it's it's one global health. We're all we have what what is it saying? Uh, bacteria doesn't have national boundaries. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you don't like the podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.